Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Homestead Education. So this week, I actually don't, or this episode, I actually don't have a guest. I wanted to come and talk to you guys about just some current events that have been happening and uh, combating food inflation. Um, It's such a big topic right now that, I mean, is important to the homestead world as well as anyone else that's living in America right now. Um, I'm not sure what inflation looks like in some other countries, but I fear that it's happening there as well. So I want to start out just talking about some things that are going on in our homestead circles, which one of them is conference season is coming up. If you want to find out if I'm going to be at any uh, homestead or homeschool conference in your area, go to thehomesteadeducation.com forward slash events. And I keep a record there of everywhere I'm going to be, if I'm going to be a speaker, a vendor, a sponsor, and um, if I am going to be a speaker, what my topics are and when you can catch those. Like, for example, um, at the Great Homeschool Conventions, I'll be doing workshops and those have scheduled times. So coming up over the next two months, that's February and March, I will be at the North Idaho Homeschool Conference, uh, February 18th in Coeur d'Alene. And there I will be a vendor, a sponsor, and I will be greeting everybody in a short speech. So I'm kind of excited to get to reach my local people. So that's going to be really exciting. The next one will be at the Great Homeschool Conventions in St. Louis, Missouri. That one is March 16th through 18th. Like I just mentioned, I'm going to be doing three workshops there, one on raising the self-sufficient child, one on the homestead homeschool, and one on homestead history, which is a side project I've been working on to release later this year. So I'm excited because this will be my first debut into that topic. So that's going to be a really good one. The very next weekend, I'm going to be outside of Nashville at the Women's Homestead Society uh, event. That is already sold out, but make sure that you find her on Instagram and follow her. What she's doing is really great, and she's just trying to bring women together in an amazing way. Uh, The next conference I will be at is Keeping of the Old Ways. That's going to be in Dothan, Alabama. I'm actually, I'm excited for that one because I'm going to have my son with me, and I get to take him to see the Gulf Coast, which... My kids have never seen the ocean on the East Coast, only Pacific Coast Ocean, which I know personally there is a huge difference. And so I'm excited for them to get to experience hopefully a warmer beach and just a just a different experience. Now, I'm going to skip forward a little bit and talk to you guys about the Modern Homestead Conference that's going to be happening in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho this year. It's going to be June 30th through July 1st. It's a two-day conference. And it's the first one of this size in the Pacific Northwest. So I am beyond excited about this. I mean, we've been traveling to Homesteaders of America in Virginia every year. And that is, of course, an amazing event. And we'll be going this year and probably in future years. However, it's really amazing to not only have a conference that is available for West Coast people who are very into the homesteading to be able to travel to locally, but also it's giving a chance for a lot of our local, not only homesteaders, but business starters to be able to speak and uh, showcase their products for local people. So I'm just, I'm really excited. I am going to be a vendor there and I'm also going to be one of the speakers. This is one of, this is going to be the first time I'm speaking at a homestead event and I am, 
I'm just so, I've been saying excited a lot. I am overjoyed to be getting to speak in front of my homestead community on these topics that mean so much to me. Uh, with that, there are a lot of local business owners that are getting to be speakers at this event as well. And so I have reached out to several of them and they are going to be coming on my podcast as guests over the next couple of months. That is going to be really awesome because it's going to give them a chance to get everybody really excited about what they're going to be talking about this conference. I do know for another week, there are early, there's early bird pricing on this conference. So make sure if this is something you're interested in that you pop over to the modernhomesteadconference.com. I I think it doesn't have the at the beginning and that's the way I said it. And get those tickets right away. Uh, It's going to be just an amazing event. There's lots of lodging in the area. Spokane is only 20 minutes away so you can fly in easily. Uh, Make sure you don't miss this event. It's going to be great. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what is going on on our homestead. It is winter. It is cold. It is, well, everything's not really frozen anymore. We are fully into mud season at the beginning of February, and I am just blown away how early it is coming this year. I'm really hoping we don't end up with two mud seasons, because I've seen that happen before, where everything freezes and snows again, and we end up having mud season again at the beginning of April, and it is a mess. And it is so hard to deal with animals and keep our yard nice and dogs and kids in and out of the house with mud. It is, and I mean, the mud is like, it's like no mud I've ever experienced. It sticks to your boots and makes your boots like 10 pounds heavier and you can hardly even walk wearing them. And you can't scrape it off. It's like thick clay. And we don't even really have a lot of clay soil here. So I don't know why it's like this. But I'm really hoping that this is, we're just going to go into an early spring and not have a second mud season. However, we finally started farrowing, which is when all of our pigs start having their spring babies. And we sell a lot of 4-H hogs. So... I need them born in January or February to be able to sell them to 4-H kids for our local fair. Our first pig, Two Pharaoh, is actually my daughter's fair pig from last year that didn't make weight, which I don't blame the pig or the genetics on that. I don't think my daughter worked with the pig as much as she should have, but that's a whole nother conversation for how to get your kids to work with their animals. Maybe that'll be a podcast I'll do later this season when everybody starts getting their pigs for summer fairs. So we were really excited to breed her pig this year. Her pig's name is Scrappy and this is the first uh, official litter that we are getting out of our new boar Red. Um, I've spoke about him a little bit. He was the one that was injured by um, one of our sows last spring and he's doing a lot better obviously. Um, I think that he's actually going to always have a limp on his front leg, but luckily that it's not a genetic issue and he doesn't need his front legs to breed. So, and obviously he's doing his job because we're getting red piglets and he is red <laughs> because he is a Hereford boar, which is an American heritage breed that originated in the Midwest from the breeding of Durox and some other breeds, which I can't, I don't know the whole lineages right now. So I don't want to go into that. So Scrappy only had five piglets, but that's really normal with a uh, first time guilt, especially kind of in our homestead setting rather than a commercial farm. And they all look amazing. I actually have a reel over on Instagram that we thought we were going to lose one and my husband saved it in a kind of non-traditional way. So I will actually link the that in the show notes, because if you get a chance to go check out that reel, it is pretty awesome. I'm thinking of actually doing a whole YouTube with all the footage I have from it. Um, However, this just happened a couple days ago, and I haven't had the time to go further into that. So you're probably wondering what else I do with all my piglets. I have a ton of people locally that buy piglets in the spring to butcher in the fall. Sometimes they have them go through a local butcher and sometimes they butcher them themselves. Uh, 
But I want to talk to you about that a little bit. Not just for those of you who might be local and considering buying from our farm, but also anybody else who's looking to grow their own meat. And yes, this kind of goes into my next conversation of the combating food prices, but same time talking about pigs right now, I'm going to go ahead and cover it. Raising out market pigs is, or pigs for a butcher is actually probably one of the easiest animals to do this with. You can buy piglets in the spring, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in. I still see them going for under $100 for a piglet. Personally, we can't sell them for that price here because of the price of feeds, but there are some places in the Midwest that do sell them for lower prices. Um, and I know a lot of people that will actually travel to places like South Dakota to buy a trailer of piglets to take back to their local area and sell them at, you know, enough to cover their costs, but it still gives uh, locals a chance to purchase piglets at a reasonable price. Just make sure that if you're running animals across state lines that they have vet certificates, which usually a vet comes out and just puts a tag on the piglets and does an, a quick inspection and fills out a form and you're good to go. Now, you can raise these pigs out for about a half a ton of feed a piece. That's buying a piglet sometime in the spring, butchering um, sometime in the fall. It's usually a six to eight month old pig is how they are when they're butchered. Uh, probably, no, I would say eight to ten months maybe. Um, and at that point, they're going to be well over 250 pounds. And you can reach that weight for about the thousand pounds of feed mark. Which, if you're buying from a feed mill, and especially if you have the ability to buy it in a bulk sack, you're looking at, ah, geez, I pay 400 for a ton. So, I mean, you're looking at a couple hundred for a half a ton of feed. I mean, that's really nothing. And then you can get it butchered at a local butcher shop or do it yourself. I pay two to $300 to have a pig butchered. So, I mean, you're looking at total cost with that if you already have the facilities. I mean, if you need to put a fence in, but that's an investment for a long term being able to raise a pig every year. So when I raise a pig, I'm actually going to sit here and do this math right now while I'm on the podcast because I feel like it's an important topic. I pay a hundred bucks. Let's say I pay 150 for a piglet. And then just to err on the safe side, 300 for half a ton and another 300 for slaughter, butcher, and cut and wrap, and smoking. Um, and I'm going to leave that 300 on there because even people who home butcher, you have a lot of costs that go along with that for supplies or if you're a first-timer and you need to buy a meat grinder or something along those lines. You're looking at $750 to do this from start to finish for yourself. Now, with that, if you have a 250-pound hog, they will dress out, which means when they're butchered and they've been bled and gutted, they dress out at about 187 pounds. With that, you and it's, that's at a 75% yield, you can do the 75% again. And that's having you come home with like 120, 140 pounds of meat. So when you divide that out, uh, the 750 that you put into your pigs divided by, let's just do 125 to go on the air on the side of caution. But I definitely say, make sure you ask for everything. Like you want your ham hocks, you want your leaf fat, which is what you can use to make lard. And if you don't want to make lard, I guarantee you there's someone else that you know that does. Get every bit that you can because you want everything that you can possibly get out of this hog that you raised. That works out to $6 a pound. I'm telling you, I can't even get sausage for $6 a pound most of the time now. And you're getting a product that you know how the animal was treated. You know what food that animal received. And... 
chances are you're choosing to raise that animal in a much healthier way. This is giving you a product you want. Now, I mean, I know locally when people sell whole butcher hogs, which we sell them ourselves, we sell ours for $8.50 and then you pay your own cut and wrap. So that's another $300 on top of that $8.50, which is about standard of what's going in our area. And that covers all of our costs. And then you, like I said, you would pay your own cut and wrap. But I mean, you consider our time put into it. It works out to almost the same as if you did it yourself, but then you're also paying for the farmer's time. That is an amazing way to fill your freezers. You can split it with somebody or do the whole thing yourselves. I mean, for us, we're a family of six and we eat a lot of pork. So we sometimes do about three hogs a year. Now we will trade meat and do other things like that, but we definitely easily go through three hogs a year. If you ever need extra recipes, feel free and reach out. I don't always post everything online, but I, I also hear that's probably the next biggest concern with getting that much meat is what do I do with all the products? Uh, because not everybody's used to making a pork roast. So I am more than happy to share any recipes that I have in my wheelhouse because I grew up completely only eating farm-raised and hunted meats. And so I have lots of great recipes. Now, to move on to talk about seed starting. We are, actually, I'm going to wait on that because in my notes, I want to talk about something else, which goes along more with the meat. We are officially putting our meat room together this year. So we've been starting to work on that. And it's really exciting because when we bought our property, it originally had a meat processing room on our property. There is, we have a walk-in cooler that can hold up to three steers in it. We also have a full room that's got the tile floors, it's got the drains, it's got a hot water heater, it's got the like melanin walls that you can just spray down. The only thing it doesn't have is a stainless steel st sink and stainless steel tables. Now, between our own bargain shopping and what the seller of our house when we bought it was willing to give us. We have a bandsaw. We have big meat grinders and meat choppers. We have um, pretty much all the equipment that we need. We have big smokers that we can create our own meat processing room for our own meats and for our friends to have a place to process their pigs that they've butchered or if they get an elk or something for a minimal cost at this point. And we are so excited to get this done because we do a lot of meat here and we do it all in our kitchen. And it's a, I don't want to say it's a huge mess, but it definitely takes over the whole house. And I'm excited to just have a designated and probably cleaner space to work on these projects. And that's going to be big for us. The next one is talking about seed starting. And one thing that I'm wanting to talk about with that is everybody is starting to get those winter blues right now. I mean, I have them. I am ready for some sunshine. It hit 40 something degrees the other day. I had all the kids up at the barn. I really miss out on a lot of barn activities during the winter because it's hard for me to take the babies up to the barn. And I don't want to just leave my daughter in charge of them all the time, even though, I mean, she helps a lot. But when I'm working, she has the babies. And then when there's barn stuff going on, I don't want to leave her with the babies as well. So we were able to everybody go up to the barn and spend some time up there. And oh, it felt so good. I am just absolutely ready for better weather. But it is seed starting time for us here in North Idaho. Uh, there's some that I probably won't start for a couple months, but there's some that I'm actually a couple weeks behind on starting, which is a bummer, but it's life. I... Uh, start everything in my meat room, or not my meat room, my mud room. I have set up an entire grow operation in there using wire racks and grow lights from Home Depot. And I just put all my seeds on the racks and I can start hundreds of seeds in my mud room. I My mud room then goes out onto my back porch that has a really great afternoon sun. 
and I can just drag my tables or my grow racks right out onto the porch when they're ready to start being outside and not getting hardened off. So I am ready to get started with that and beat my winter blues and have my garden stuff ready because I'm going to be doing some new things with my garden this year that I'll probably talk about a little later. Now, with that, um, I buy most of my seeds at True Leaf Market because I like ha getting the organic and heritage seeds. I sell a lot of my seed starts and my customers prefer to have heritage varieties. Their prices are not terrible at all. They're actually really good. Um, but then I, you know, buy too many. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can get free shipping on orders over $45. So that's a really awesome one as well. Uh, just make sure you use my link to get that. Now, I want to move on to what's going on in the news right now and some current events on homesteading or homesteading food prices, food inflation. It's just such a big topic. And I feel like there's a lot of scare tactics online, on social media. And I would just like to talk to you guys about this from a someone who's come from the food industry who is also in the homestead world and kind of seeing what's going on right now. Now, I mean, of course, I have my own thoughts on some of this. And of course, in a lot of ways, I will share my thoughts with you. But at the same time, I am not really interested in looking into a really big political debate on this because I also feel like when you bring some politics in it, it makes it where you can't, some people just can't hear the other great information that is coming out of this. So what I'm doing is just giving a few facts, a few things I've heard, and then how to just deal with what is actually happening. Because no matter what side of the fence you're on, eggs are still really expensive right now. I I mean, I was blown away by the prices up here in North Idaho, and we went to California last month, and I would never pay $50 for five dozen eggs. I mean, I was just blown away by those prices, especially when I was only an hour away from one of the biggest egg growing or egg, egg farming communities where I grew up. And I was just shocked that people were paying that. I mean, it's outrageous. So yes, eggs are expensive right now. I don't really have any tips to combat that price. <clears throat> but I would like to talk to you about long-term food security when it comes to this. Chickens are seasonal egg layers. We all know this. There are a lot of people online right now who are saying, hey, the cost of eggs are just because chickens are seasonal. Stop thinking this is a big conspiracy theory. We all know that chickens are seasonal. But how many other years have you paid $10 for a dozen eggs? Because I know that I have never, ever paid $10 for a dozen eggs, no matter what was going on in the wintertime. And when I was buying a dozen eggs for a dollar over the summer, I see that there is no reason that they should be $10 a dozen just a few months later. It is absolutely ridiculous. Something is going on. What? I don't know. Um, I have my ideas. Like I said, I don't want to go into a bunch of political stuff. I, I think, like I said, I just don't know. But what I can give you is the information I have. So for your a chickens that you have right now, if they've stopped laying, that is probably not a conspiracy theory. That is probably because the days were recently short enough. So eggs, chickens, oh, have like two weeks worth of eggs in their system, like all the time. So, I mean, our shortest days were, what, just over a month ago? So we're just now really seeing the height of lower egg production on that natural cycle that chickens have. My chickens, I don't even know what they've been laying because I let them free rage over the winter, which I'm going to talk about later. 
And so, I mean, my kids found some eggs under a trailer the other day and fed them to the pigs. But so I guess they are laying, but (laughs) I don't know what they're laying or at least in what quantities. Now, this is the time of year that we do bring our chickens back in where they aren't free ranging anymore. I get their coop all nice and ready to go. We turn on a light in there to give them the slightly longer days that they need. It doesn't need to be a full heat lamp, just a light bulb. Because light is what triggers their systems to uh, grow more eggs. Or, yeah. And I'm gonna, I'll beef up their feed with a little bit more protein. I They've been scavenging a lot of pig feed lately. And I mean, there's, there's good protein in our pig feed, but my Lena or layer feed has probably about 5% more protein in it than pig feed does. Plus, I like to give them some fresh fodder when I start that in my grow room, which I'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. And that just boosts them and gets them ready for a good laying season. So the thought on contaminated feed. So I, I've heard that they're putting reproductive blocking agents into chicken feed. I've also seen some polit- or political uh, law documentation that that is a legal thing for them to do to combat other medical things. I- like I said, I'm trying to not go down these rabbit trails because it's such a scary concept that it could be real. What I And they're also saying that they're just lowering protein amounts in some of the commercial feeds. And then uh, feed stores are still selling this knowing that it's been lowered and selling it for the same price. And I mean, protein is where the money really comes from in feeds. If you think that's a concern... Buy from local food mill feed mills. They're usually sourcing grains from local companies. A lot of these local companies don't get commodities from uh, the government to grow because they aren't selling to big producers. And so there's a really good chance that if there is anything like that happening, that local producers aren't... Um, going to have these feeds that are in the lower proteins or possibly have the reproductive blocking agents in them. I don't know for sure, but it doesn't hurt to support your local feed mills. So maybe that's the route we want to take. I have heard rumors that as many as 1900 food plants have been, have burned down in the last few years, including two of them having planes fly into them. That doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. Who's doing it? I don't know. It could be government. It could be activists. I I don't know. It's a really scary concept. Um, I know that Bill Gates, as well as... I mean, I think they're being called elitists. And um, foreign entities have been buying a lot of our farmland. This is fact. Um, I, I would, I don't know, I don't have any resources in front of me right now, but I've seen resources before. And I'm pretty big on making sure that these things are true before I even wrap my brain around them, let alone share them with my audience. <clears throat> I don't know why they want so much of our farmland. Uh, I have seen a lot of movement towards insect, like cricket and plant-based meats, which are obviously not meats. Also lab-grown meats. I don't even know what the heck that is. I'm really grossed out by the concept. Uh, There's got to be a way to avoid this. I mean... Overall, I know that the way they're marketing it, and I'd like to think that they have good intentions, is to be able to feed our population, we need to find some alternative protein sources. But I would rather find ways to more efficiently grow the proteins we already are than trying to come up with other ways. 
Um, personally, I would not eat cricket or lab-grown meat. I am just... I mean, I wouldn't totally take a cricket off the table. I've always kind of wanted to try those, like, chocolate-covered bugs. But... Um, that is not, I, I would not eat a cricket burger. And I think that there's a lot of people that agree with me on this. The lab grown, that just sounds disgusting too. I'm not even touching it. Now, the plant-based meats. If you are vegan or vegetarian and that is your choice to be able to eat a burger or something, go for it. I mean, it's not a bad product to have out there as an option. But I feel like it's being pushed really hard. And there's actually a lot of the reason they push it is because they say that, uh, you know, like beef operations are really bad on our planet, when actually the, um, the farming practices for some of these high protein plants like soybeans is actually way more detrimental to our environment than anything that is happening with cattle. I hear this over and over again. Like I said, you know, put it in your back pocket, keep it in your brain. If they control the food, they control the people. And you just have to remember that. If something doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't. So, um, I just realized uh, my next point was going to be about raising chickens. And it feels a little salesy and I don't want to be that person because I'm pretty passionate about our food systems. But what I do want to say is if you are ready to start raising your own chickens, there are some great resources out there. Um, with that, I would be nervous about buying from some of the larger hatcheries because we don't know what's going on right now. Um, I mean, I had already planned on buying some of my Cornish crosses, my meat birds for this year, until I can get my own meat bird operation going, which is our plan for this year. But I need, I'm out of chicken in the freezer, so I got to get going. I'm even worried about bringing some of those into our home or on, you know, onto our farm from these larger hatcheries because we don't know what's going on. And I mean, it could be, there's always that chance that whatever it is, is genetic or not genetic. Um, that it, you know, could be like viral or something. And I mean, oh God, I, I, I hate to be going down these rabbit trails, but I just thought of it right now myself. And so, you know, maybe if you have an opportunity to buy from a local hatchery or, I mean, I even know, I have friends locally that raise chicks every, you know, incubate chicks every spring and sell them in pretty large numbers then they don't consider themselves a hatchery, but they can definitely help supplement the local availability. And I know how hard it is to get chicks from the feed stores. I mean, sometimes you have to be on wait lists and you still don't get your chicks. So some definitely some things to consider. If you're interested in hatching your own chicks, I do have a course on hatching chickens or hatching all poultry, actually. It's a really great little course. It's very to straight to the point. And it weeds out all the abundance of information that is out there. It also includes a supply list, best practices, how to care for your chicks, marketing of poultry and products, and the printables. And I mean, the cost currently, I have it pretty low, is less than a few dozen eggs. So it might be something to consider because it's not just about the incubating of eggs. I also have how to market poultry products, how to care for new chicks when they first come home. I think it's just a really eye-opening course because it all, I mean, it talks about sanitation of everything with your poultry practices and why it needs to be done. So I, I mean, I would go check it out. It's at thehomesteadeducation.com forward slash courses. I think that it's a, a very helpful course. I'm just, where I'm coming from is there's a lot of different things that you can glean from this course besides just incubation. Um, it even talks about some ideas on where to find hatching eggs, 
not even through hatcheries, uh, the way you can get the source them locally or from your own farm. I am not saying that raising your own chickens is cheaper than buying chicken or eggs from the store. What I am, well, at eggs at this point, it might be. But what I am saying is it is a more reliable way to ensure food supply chain security over long periods of time. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is chicken feed. If we're concerned about what we're feeding our chickens, as well as if you're getting started with a chicken operation, I think it's really important to think about the other options you have besides feeding grain. Because, I mean, even if you're not worried about what is in our, in the chicken feed, commercial chicken feeds you can buy right now, sometimes we have to worry about what happens if, you know, supply chains just shut down or... I mean, even if you get snowed in and you need to feed your animals, there's a lot of really great options to keep them fed and healthy. One is using an alternative grain. Yeah, it's important for your chickens to have a well-balanced diet, but they're also going to glean a lot of that from bugs that even fly into their coop and... I mean, you can provide bugs to them. I mean, heck, take your kids out on a spring day and catch grasshoppers and go feed them to your chickens. So if you can pick up a ton of barley for $200, barley still has like a 12% crude protein. To have good laying hens, you probably want more like a 16 or 18% protein. But that's where I say get a cheaper grain and then supplement it with things you have around the house. I mean, why not? Um, another one is letting them free range a little bit more. Some people don't have that option because they live in neighborhoods or they have predators. We probably do have some that get picked off every year when we put them out to free range from predators or other issues. And that's just a risk we've been willing to take over the last few years because our uh, days are so short in the winter, nobody's laying. And that's a lot of money out when we can let them free range around the barn and they're eating mice. And yes, they eat mice. They are eating any bugs that are around the barn. They're cleaning up any grain that the kids spill when they're going up to feed. Um, I have even seen them eating undigested grain out of other animals' feces. And that's fine for them. It doesn't hurt them at all. Um, as long as all your animals are healthy, where, you know, for us, it's the pigs. They're eating grain out of their feces a lot. You know, all of our pigs are wormed. All of our chickens are wormed. I'm not real worried about it. Um, fodder is another great option. And that's where you can take, like, for example, that cheap barley that you picked up. And you soak it and put it in trays with a little bit of water and give it some light. And in just a few days, you have... Hydroponically grown grass, basically, that is all worked together in mats from the roots all growing together. And you can cut it in strips and feed it to your chickens. And that actually makes that protein that is in the grain a much more bioavailable protein for the chickens. Another idea is a chicken garden. Now, when it's 10 degrees out right now, I'm not thinking about my chicken garden. But every year I designate a small area in my garden just to uh, grains, which, you know, I can't grow enough amaranth to feed my family. But I can grow enough of that to supplement my chickens all the way through winter. So, you know, I grow amaranth, sunflowers, uh, some greens, and just a few other, uh, we grew some quinoa one year, pretty much just whatever I can find or I can catch on sale or, you know, I mentioned True Leaf before, they have packs that have some uh, things like that that you can get going. And 
one year I had, I was able to fence off that small area in my garden and actually put my chickens in there where then they did all the pest control and stuff for their own grains once they got tall enough that I wasn't worried about the chickens eating the seedlings. And at the end of the year, I just dry everything on like a screen with uh, wood around it to hold it. Like I frame it out. Dry it all on there. Any seeds that fall through, I collect. And then just throughout the year, I throw things in for them. Or throughout the winter, I, you know, I can just throw a whole sunflower head in there. I don't even have to process it. And they handle it. And they get what they need from it. Another one is your scraps. There are so many scraps you can feed your chickens. I mean, I even just saw someone the other day that their freezer went out. And their meat was bad. And they didn't want to waste all that protein. So they were feeding it to their chickens. Why not? I mean, if they eat mice, I'm good with them eating a package of burger that I, is too bad for me to eat, but fine for them. They, I think there's just like a stigma that you have to feed them this perfectly formulated feed. And to be quite honest, you don't. It's, they are going to... You could be feeding them the most perfect feed and they're still going to like be way more happy about the mouse that snuck into their chicken coop. So you might as well not waste any of the things that are coming out of your house when there's a lot of animal, a, a lot of different livestock that can eat those things. So now talking about what you can be doing inside your house to save money and combat these prices. So I haven't heard anything specific on meat lately and meat prices, What, except for the attacks I already talked about. But I went to buy a pack of lunch meat for my kids the other day, and it was $10 for a pound of the basic lunch meat. I mean, how, how, how can I feed a family of seven when... A pack of lunch meat that we can pretty much go through in one meal is $10 a pound. I mean, it's outrageous. So, I mean, right at that moment, I was like, I have two pigs, an elk, half a steer. I'm going to get another steer this week. Why am I buying lunch meat when I have three freezers full of pork and beef? So I came home and I pulled out a 20-pound smoked ham. I cut it in half. It was boneless. I cooked it in the oven with a glaze I found online. And then my husband put it on the meat slicer, which we have a meat slicer that is, I think I paid 30 bucks for it. We have a commercial one too, which is good. But when we're just doing little projects in the house, we use this meat slicer that, like I said, I think I paid $30 for it on Amazon. I'll, I'll find it and link it. I might be wrong on the price, but it was very much on the low end. And I mean, my mom had the same one or the same style and I've been using them in the house for years and they're great. Um, but it's, I put half of that meat in the freezer and I put the other half in the fridge and now we have smoked ham. It's better for us than any of that processed stuff. It has way less sodium. It has a slightly different texture. So you are going to have probably some issues with younger kids or even yourselves like adjusting to that. But I mean, consider like what you're doing for your body is so much better and for your checkbooks. So to make your own lunch meat, you can use any of the roasts. Um, definitely, you know, higher end uh, pork roast is or beef roast is going to be a better choice. Um, I can never remember what the high ends are versus the low ends. So um, I should know that, but I don't. And uh, turkey breast, chicken breast, you know, turkeys, even wild turkeys. Um, just make sure when you cook them, I, I do them in the oven with in a turkey bag with apples in there. And the apples actually really help with the tenderness and the gamey flavor. Uh, I, we get hams from our butcher that are smoked. Those are all really great ways you can bake them, roast them, smoke them, rotisserie them whatever you want to do, and then just slice them as thin as you can and either freeze them or put them in the fridge. It, sometimes we take all the scraps and freeze them in small baggies. And those are great for just throwing in your eggs in the morning or when the kids are doing pita pizzas, 
they can just pull some meat out and put it right onto their pizza. Now, something that a lot of people, I just, um, I don't know if we just don't think of it or maybe our grandmothers did a better job of it. When I'm making something with chicken for my family, if I have it in the freezer from buying it at the store, I try to always get a whole chicken if I can. I pull off what I need. And then I take the rest of the carcass or carcasses. We have a big family, so it's usually two. And right then and there, like as soon as we're done with dinner, I throw everything in a pot with water, whatever vegetables I happen to have laying around, a few dried herbs. I mean, I have a video on my YouTube on how to make broth. That's just the homestead education on YouTube. It's a really simple process. I let it boil, you know, for the rest of the evening while I'm cooking. I like to, I mean, if I can, I like a 10 hour slow cook on it, but sometimes that's not always an option. Uh, I get as much as I can. Sometimes I'll start it back up in the morning and then I let it cool. I, uh, well, actually before I even let it cool, I pull the bones out and I get all the rest of the meat out of my broth that I can. Um, I, you know, I strain out all the big chunks and I get all the extra meat that I can. And then I take that extra meat and I use it to make like chicken salad sandwiches or one night I turned it into tacos. Like why not use all that little bit? And if it's been boiling for 10 hours, it is about as tender as it gets. And I get quite a bit off. I mean like enough to feed my whole family tacos or enough to do like a chicken salad sandwich. And then I also have broth. Oh, and another one I've done is I've actually taken all the veggies and that chicken, chopped it all up together and made egg rolls out of it. So that's another really fun one. Uh, and then you have all that broth to use. And I mean, you don't have to can your broth. You don't have to follow a specific canning recipe. You can freeze what you don't use. Or in our case, I usually use it within a week or two and... In the fridge, it usually stays good, especially if I put it, you know, if I strain it good so there's no fat on it that can go rancid and stuff. And it's good in my fridge for a couple weeks. If I it starts to sour a little bit, I pour it over my dog's food. And they're, I mean, that's another way to provide protein to my dogs. Another one is fish. Now, most people think of like salmon and tuna as what you're going to be eating on your sandwiches or as a protein source. But if you have somebody that in your family that likes to go fishing, bring that fish home and bake it or smoke it and shred it and make sandwiches out of it. I mean, you don't have to make a sandwich, but you can put it over a salad or anything else that you would use canned tuna for or uh, smoked salmon. Why not use smoked trout, especially when, I mean, what a fishing license is under a hundred bucks and you can pretty much get as many fish as uh, you can reasonably catch during the season. I mean, I know there's a lot of limits where you can only get four a day or something, but I mean, goodness, if your whole family was going and fishing and getting four fish a day, you'd have enough fish to feed your family for the year. I mean, definitely don't take that off the table as a way to supplement your protein in your house. Another option is anytime you see a meat for sale. As long as it's not something really weird like tongue, which I mean, if you want to try tongue, go for it. I, I hear tongue tacos are great. I don't think I could bring myself to try it. Um, But heck, sometimes if I have products like that that come from my butcher, I feed them to my dogs and I'll get in, onto that a little bit more later too. Now, <clears throat> you can take that meat Take it home and challenge yourself to find a recipe on Pinterest for it and find a meal to do or challenge your family to be on board with trying something new or have your older kids help find a recipe that sounds good to them. This is going to get everybody on board for saving money and having different cuts of meat to try and you're going to have less of the you what's this if everybody's on board to give it a shot. And you might end up saving yourself quite a bit um, in grocery costs. And now, I mean, when I talk about this, I actually have a free ebook on my site. You can get it when you subscribe. It's the homesteadeducation.com forward slash subscribe. It's, uh, called homemade cost cutting. 
And I talk about how my family cut our food budget from $1,500 a month to $300 a month just by making some really basic habit changes in the house and, you know, to not try to overdo yourself. I do go into more detail on this in episode 12 of my podcast. And I know I've been uh, sourcing a lot of different things from my website through this podcast episode, but I just felt like it was one that it's on everybody's mind right now. So if I can give you as much information as possible that I can, hopefully this will um, expand what you're doing. Uh, So back to what I was saying on that. this ebook, it talks about multiple different things that we did and how to change those habits. It gives some really specific recipes. Um, and something that we do a lot of is we, we call them the two day meals, but everybody hates it when you make a giant pot of spaghetti and then you eat spaghetti for a week. So don't do that. I mean, go ahead and do that because I like spaghetti and two days in a row is not a problem for me. But one that we do is Ham, hocks, and beans is a big one in our house. Personally, I used to hate ham, hocks, and beans. And honestly, I still would not eat standard ham, hocks, and beans. I don't like that kind of smoky, sweet flavor in my beans. So what I do is I actually make mine with quite a bit of onion um, that I saute first. And then I add in, oh, I think it's a couple tablespoons of Cajun seasoning. And oh my gosh, then we make some like honey cord bread. It is amazing. The kids love it. We love it. It's outrageously good. And then the next day, because it already has that kick to it, I take whatever meat is left on the ham hock and shred it up. And we basically have pork tacos with it. I might add a little bit more cumin or just taco seasoning to the beans and shred some cheese and put it in a tortilla, or I like mine, uh, with just some chips. And it is, it's so amazing. And I mean, a ham hock and a pound of dried beans, I mean, that's maybe a $4 meal. I mean, it's awesome. The next one is pot roast. Uh, I have a couple different pot roast recipes I really love. Uh, I have one of them on my website. It's a really tomato-based uh, pot roast. So that's, it's kind of different. It's really good. So we do pot roast one night, but then we usually don't have enough meat for that to last the next night, but there's always a ton of vegetables and juice left. So the next night I will, if I need to add more vegetables and a little more broth or thin out the broth and add in like a cup of barley and make it, we call it pot roast soup. And I mean, I actually just found some that I'd frozen containers and had that for lunch and I was... It was so good. I can't wait to get our next steer in so that I have another roast to make pot roast with. Now, and that's actually another point that I have is every time you're done making dinner, you know, a lot of people go, hey, is there enough for dinner tomorrow night? Everyone says no. And it's like, okay, we'll feed it to the dogs or just throw it out or something. Save it. Even if you're like, I'm not going to eat, you know, leftover soup tomorrow. Put it in a container, put it in the freezer, and one day when you are tempted to go to McDonald's or open up a can of store-bought soup, you are going to have homemade, good ingredients soup in your freezer ready to go that can be heated up in just a few minutes. And it's going to be way better for you. And if you do this regularly and just have like a shelf or two in your freezer... You are basically going to have like TV sized dinners for everybody's lunches. I mean, just you're going to have a ton. And I mean, for us homeschooling with as many kids as we do, I mean, that's how they eat their lunch most days. It's a really great setup. The next one is breads and tortillas. Sometimes that can be overwhelming. I have a couple recipes on breads. Tortillas are actually really easy. You can just Google a recipe We don't do that every time. I mean, I like a nice, big, perfect tortilla when I'm having a taco or a burrito. And when we make our our tortillas at home, we have a small tortilla press. It doesn't really do the trick. It's great more for like a street taco style or like they kind of sometimes end up lopsided. But they're good for just like dipping in my ham hocks and beans, you know, or something like that. (laughs) 
definitely a way to save yourself money. If you're like us and live really far out, you know, you run out of bread and you're like, well, I guess I better go to bread, go to town and buy some bread. Well, I end up driving. It's easily a three hour round trip for us to go to town to buy a couple of $2 loaves of bread and drive home. I mean, I wasted three hours of my day of my work time, time with my family when I could have in five minutes started a loaf of bread in my bread machine and in two hours instead of three, I would have a bread to go with dinner and time like real time with my family. So it's really worth it. The last kind of tip like this that I have is dog food. One for us living so far out, sometimes when we run out of dog food, I am not driving to town for dog food. I have enough stuff these guys can eat around here. Another one is dog food has easily doubled in price lately. I mean, it is insane. So something that I do is I take whatever scrap meats I have or, you know, because we, uh, you know, butcher a lot of our own meats. We do scrap piles and then I freeze them and put them in the freezer just for my dogs for later dog food making. I take about a pound of it out. I mean, we did heart for them the other day. Sometimes it's just fat chunks and stuff. It's just whatever we have. I put that in my Instapot with, I don't know, if I have some veggies that are maybe starting to turn. Not that I'd only want to give them bad stuff, but, you know, a slightly soft carrot may not taste great fresh for me, but would taste great to a dog. So I put that in there if I have maybe some grains that the bag got left open and they're, you know, not enough for a whole serving for us, I'll dump those in. I mean, I know a lot of people try to stay away from like, especially the corn and wheat based for their dogs, but I always have some sort of little grain around and it's a good filler for them to fill them up. And when you're cooking that with the meat and broths and stuff, it it's getting protein and has some good things for them in there. Um, I will add sometimes eggshells to it if I have milk or a non-sweetened yogurt or something like that in the freezer. It makes a really, or in the fridge, it makes for a really great fridge and pantry clean out of quality or on the tail end of quality items for my dogs. And I put it all in the Instapot. I turn it on for, I don't know, 40 minutes or something. And when I'm done, I have great healthy dog food for my crew and we have five big dogs and that is enough to feed them for the day honestly uh you know and if I have dog food in the house and I'm just trying to stretch it because money's tight that could be almost two days worth if I put it over their dog food so uh that's another way to save money on dog food and to not be wasting as much food out of your fridges and freezers The last thing I want to actually bring up is the concept of victory gardens. We have heard about victory gardens a ton. I mean, this was a movement during World War II to encourage people to grow their own gardens. And they did this both at home and in like public parks and town squares. It was one thing to boot. It was to boost morale, but it also created more of a food source when a lot of food plants were focusing their energies towards the war effort And a lot of farmers were young men who were in the war. This concept came up again during COVID and everybody started to talk about Victory Gardens again. And that's how we had this huge homestead push was during the COVID era, which I don't know. Are we out of it yet? Maybe, maybe not. And but I need to ask, why aren't we talking Victory Gardens now? When food is the price that it's at, it's really scary that we might be going into another depression-style era. I know we're definitely in a declared recession. So why aren't we being proactive on growing these gardens before we have to? Do it now while we would like to or we should. Start them now because who knows where we'll be in six months. And with everything that you're going to be able to freeze or preserve after summertime, I mean, this could be where you are you going to be next winter. I mean, who knows? A dozen eggs might be $20 next winter. And 
the most important question I have is, can I grow a victory cow? Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education, and I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at the Homestead Education and Instagram at Homestead underscore Education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at the homesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!